we, okay. why don't we start this okay let's podcast. go i uh i can talk about I, I i saw the english beat play last night i saw leopoldstadt have you seen Leopold? <laughs> no, I've always wanted. I just don't want to say Leopold. Let's can we start? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Three, two, one. <laughs> hey, we're just on the cusp of Thanksgiving, and this is the Glop Culture Podcast. I am John Pudhoritz in New York, elsewhere in New York. Rob Long. Hello, Rob. Hi, John. And in Washington, recovering from a bout of COVID, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, John. We know we know you have we know you have COVID because you've told everybody you had COVID on the but it's not obvious on the website that apparently was supposed to collapse and be dead by now. Uh, uh, but it yes. isn't amazingly enough. Apparently, and we, we should talk about survived. that. But like, it is it is a remarkable thing how when you tell people on Twitter that you have COVID that they think this is their great opportunity to explain to you that COVID isn't real. Like literally of all the times to like, I am open to the argument that COVID isn't a thing. It is not when I'm hacking up a lung from having COVID. You you look very good though. You don't look sickly. You don't look on and sickly. You look, I am, I am, I am hyped up on every over the counter. uh, I feel better. Like, you know, there's that certain kind of like, Oh my gosh, I'm not going to die like this kind of yeah, feeling right. you get. Like today, this morning, I woke up and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I, I like." I, so what did you? Again. What? Oh, what are your? What are your home remedies? What were your remedies? Because I, I have one that I just read a, a really interesting, um, uh, uh, kind of a research study about. Um, nothing too clever. Uh, I didn't take any of the like Paxlovid or any of that kind of stuff. I did a lot of vitamin D, a lot of vitamin C. That's it. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of soup. Um, and uh, a lot of sleep, enormous soup. amount of sleep. <laughs> was uh, it chicken soup? <laughs> it was chicken soup. It was chicken soup. I, I just recorded a <laughs> podcast with Matt Ridley about uh, uh, COVID and, and all that, which was like really sort of the verisimilitude of hacking up a lung while talking to Matt Ridley about COVID was kind of fun. And uh, we're talking about Chinese traditional medicine and how China won't let go of it. And that's one of the reasons why they have such problems with, with, with COVID. And, uh, it occurred to me, it's just sort of like, you know, the, the Jews, they keep their thing about chicken noodle soup, but they don't like reject modern science in the process. Oh, in fact, they insist you know. their children become doctors, quite the reverse. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I was in Beijing once years ago, and I, um, with my, my uncle was there, and I, um, I was just hanging around Beijing for a couple of weeks. And I thought, oh, you know what? I, I want to go to the doctor here. I'll go to, the, I want to go to the doctor. And there's an actually very famous Chinese medicine hospital. It's right on Tiananmen Square. So you got to go to Tiananmen Square and then you go to the hospital. And then I just, just wanted to check up. I just want to see what they're going to do. And, um, uh, they smelled me. That's Mm. what they did. They smelled me. They, they, he smelled me. And then he kind of looked at my, uh, uh, the color of my skin, the face, and he kind of felt how hot I was in like the small of my back and other places. Then he smelled me. And then he said, okay, here's what you need to do. And he gave, he gave me these little, he gave me all these gave little pills. A, he gave you a raw tiger pancreas. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> gave me all these in the all these pills and told me very painstakingly how, when to take them and how to take them. Um, and then I took them home and I comp- probably forgot like what they were and how to take them. 
um, because and the and the labels entirely in Mandarin. So I basically had them from my house for like ten years. And when I moved from LA, I thought I should just throw these out because I I'm not I don't know what they are anymore. And they don't look like pills. They don't look like they were manufactured at you know under the the uh, the, the to Pfizer levels of hygiene. They look like <laughs> really? little round BBs, little black round BBs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would not, um, I would not credit those. Can I point out that, you know how people say when you go to an ethnic restaurant, you know, a really good one, because that's where the people of that ethnicity choose to eat. Yeah. This is not something, a policy you necessarily want to follow with Chinese food. Mm-hmm. I because totally Americanized agree. Chinese food is like General Tso's chicken and, you know, sesame noodles and uh, whatever. And Chinese food for Chinese people is disgusting. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, is, it, yeah. is, it is, you know, it is like, you know, yeah, pancreas of a, you know, goat. Uh Yeah. General so, you know, like that. Or <laughs> right. Or we bury uh, this in the earth for 72 days and then it rots and then you eat it. Delicious. Yeah, I, 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 blood I, I clot. I once and saw I had, blood clot yeah. on him. I'm not joking. Blood clot was on a menu because it must have been the literal translation of something that you could like get blood as an appetizer. Kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Just clot. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed dining clot, in China. I have to say. I have okay. enjoyed I'm not dining talking about dining in China. I'm talking about American, these hole in the wall places. Yeah. Go in there and you look at the menu and you're like, nah, I think I'll. Um, on the other hand, I just had this experience. I'm walking down, well, P.F. Chang is delicious. Walking down Third Avenue, uh, past a restaurant, uh, uh, a Chinese restaurant I've seen um, on like Caviar or DoorDash or one of those delivery services. But I'm, I don't know. Was it any good? I don't know. And I, I really did this. I looked in the window and it was filled with Chinese people and this restaurant. And I made a mental note that well, it must be good. And so the other night I ordered it. I was watching Dairy Girls and I wanted to watch, eat some Chinese food and watch Dairy Girls. And I ordered it and it was terrible. It was terrible. It wasn't even, it wasn't like it was the pancreas of the goat. I mean, not, fine. You know, who am I to judge? It was, it was bad Kung Pao chicken. So, you know, there the you story go. of ethnic cuisines in America is a story of a generational crisis. Because when I was a kid, when we were, Joan and I were kids, there were Chinese restaurants were like, were like a new state. Right. Like there was one mm-hmm. on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. There was a Chinese restaurant on nearly every block between yep. like 110th Street and and 79th Street. There were probably 30 Chinese restaurants of different varieties. And now there are almost none. And what there is is bad. And why is that? Because they were family-run businesses. <laughs> and the children are on well. MIT now. Yeah. Yeah. Children did well. And they didn't want to run the family business. So like Indian restaurants, very much the same. 20 years ago, there were great Indian restaurants everywhere. They were cheap. They were good. Now you now you labor to find a decent... Right. And, and Vietnamese food is all but non-existent anymore because the Vietnamese food craze, which was basically the result of boat people, right, and right. Vietnamese who moved here after, after the war was lost, their children are all, you know, on Wall Street or, or, or wherever they Street are. Great American story. Yeah. It's a great well, American the, the story, but it means really that we don't have good Bengen Barta anymore. 
Gesundheit. Um, Thank you. When you uh, in LA or the Southern California, there were um, uh, I think there still are plenty of uh, Vietnamese restaurants, and they're almost like pho or pho or something, and then a number seventy seven, seventy nine, seventy yeah. eighty one, whatever. And that number was the year the family came to the United States. Yeah. So like you wanted pho seventy four, they they got out early, they bugged out fast. Pho yeah. seventy six were like you know pretty much the thing, but so there were the great sweep of Vietnamese people in in America. They would they 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 ended up in very weird places like Oklahoma City. A lot of Oklahoma City usually yeah. because they were sponsored by a church, and it took them a while to find where they belonged in America, where where America was for them, and it was Louisiana, uh, and um, yeah. the bayous, right? Because it's the jungle. They they completely understood that relate that environment. People live in the jungle. It's hot. It's humid. There are enormous insects. And the people eat the insects. And so they're like, this is home for us. And now the pretty much the uh, shrimp, Gulf shrimp, Gulf fisheries are almost entirely run by, by Vietnamese people now. Um, because the traditional Cajuns sort of like, they had that experience. They sort of like worked and yeah. like, the kids didn't want to go, you know, get up before in the morning, go fishing. The secret to all of those um, ethnic businesses is child labor. You don't pay your kids and your kids have right. to work. I um, just remember there was a great, there was an area in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from 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 D.C., which is really basically part of D.C. I mean, it's like if if D.C. were properly structured, Arlington would be like a part of D.C. The way it, it was part of the original ten mile square. If you look at yeah, the old exactly right. yeah yeah. But it, so it's it, so so it's basically a neighborhood of D.C. And there were like a bunch were around the Clarendon Metro stop. There were like four or five really good. Vietnamese restaurants and you would go into one there was Cafe Saigon was the best one the best thing about it was it had been a shoe store and they didn't they never removed this sort of like shoe store I don't know you would call it like tiling in front of it which said something like Hennessy shoe store they just left it there so you'd walk (laughs) on this into the into the Saigon grill and your waitress was the dot was a daughter were one of the two daughters of the family that owned it. And like, if you came, you ordered, she would be sitting there at a table with her math book from high school, you know, doing math or whatever. And then she would put the book down. She would come over, she would take your order. She'd go back to do the work. Then the food would come out. She'd get it. She'd bring it to you. And that's the person who, you know, that's, that's the story of the American striver. You know, she, She is no longer running. There is no Cafe Saigon anymore because her parents were only running Cafe Saigon. They they were probably themselves probably upper middle class or something, and this was what they had to do. This was uh, this was a thing they could do, right? Was open a restaurant. Yeah. Have um, you ever been, John? In your old Washington Times days or Bush one days, did you ever go out to Peking Gourmet? Oh, and, sure. Yeah. So, like Peking Gourmet is the like, the original good Chinese restaurant yes. in DC the last 40 years. I'm sure there was something in the fifties. I don't know about, but like the walls are covered with all sorts of pictures of CIA guys, state department guys, um, very bushy kind of thing. I assume the family was from Taiwan, you know, yeah. anti-communist kind of Chinese thing. And it's still good. Um, we go out there every now and then. Um, but it's funny. It's like most of the bus boys of the last 15 years have are now Hispanic. Right. right. <laughs> and, yeah. like, and I think it's like, like, what a great country. You know, like, this is just sort of an interesting kind of thing. Well, that's an interesting, the Stage Deli, right? Uh-huh. New York, famous. There were two famous Midtown delis, the Stage Deli and the Carnegie Deli. So the Stage Deli 
was sort of like the normal one. The Carnegie Deli had this was a weird place where the sandwiches were, you know, five feet Too high. Too big for humans to eat. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the stage deli was sort of normal, and it was it was I think the more successful of the two, and the more you know mainstream, let's say, of the two. And of course, it had famously had sardonic, nasty Jewish waiters mm-hmm. uh, from of uh, waiters from jokes, like they were sort of they would come over and they'd like scowl at you, and they'd make a they'd say something snide, and you'd go away. And this is sort of like the color of 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 the restaurant. And then about it, it closed, I think, fifteen or twenty years ago. But like in the last ten years those waiters were no more. They had retired to Florida or they were dead or something like that. And so replacing them were sardonic, nasty Jamaican waiters (laughs) who had exactly the same kind of, you know, kind of, sneering superior intelligent like contemptuous of the fact that they had this job and that you were you were you know you, you they had to take an order from you and it was really an interesting kind of like cultural shift because there was absolutely no difference except that they spoke with a jamaican accent instead of with a Brooklyn <laughs> accent you know uh so uh, right, on so this we, yeah. on the thing about the shoe store place um yeah. in dc i don't know if this is the case throughout new york I- Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but the real estate's so different. In DC, CVS, um, the drugstore chain, they take over sort of iconic places and do nothing to change it. And so, in, like in my neighborhood, uh, down MacArthur Boulevard, there was a famous, fairly crappy, I have to admit, movie theater on MacArthur Boulevard. I'm sure you went to it when you lived in. Of course, in- the MacArthur. Yeah. Yes. And the CVS still has. The movie posters in the movie cases outside, wow. and like, and all the like the geriatrics in the neighborhood who miss it being a movie theater. It's just like it's total, like it's not as nostalgic as they think they they think yeah. it is. And remember the 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 remember the Chinese restaurant where the Cuban Missile Crisis stuff happened. What was that on Connecticut Avenue? Palace? Yeah, Yang- that that's a drugstore now too. Yeah, and it, it still obviously was a Chinese place, but the. The thing about CVS, which I don't think is as bad as in in New York, is that like when I go into that MacArthur CVS Mm -hmm. in the morning, there's a moment where I think, okay, I've walked in on an armed robbery and all the employees are tied up in the storeroom and back because every CVS in D.C. is, uh, which is kind of ironic and I think CVS stands for Customer Values Service, is run as if um, everybody's on the honor system about not shoplifting because it is so understaffed. And sometimes it actually looks like, um, you know, the zombie apocalypse has come and people have just raided things. And I just, I don't understand it, but it's, anyway, I'm rambling. You, you find them understaffed. I, I do this old man thing now when I go to a place like CVS uh, and I, and I notice that it's either chaos or pandemonium where there's a like huge line or something. I silently count the number of employees that I can see. And it's always like 10. And I don't know what they're doing. Is this a vision test because you're an old man? Yeah, or is no, it yeah. Like a, it's like, like why are they not? Why are <laughs> there are 10 people working here and there's one person at the register? Yeah. And they're yeah. kind of like stacking things and moving things. I just like it's an old man thing to do. Like, I'm, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to silently, and I only, I guess I don't do that silently. One, two, <laughs> three, four. <laughs> and they kind of notice that I'm counting them and like realizing that there's an imbalance here. There's, 
You have two employees for every customer in this place right now. You, we could all this place could be empty in a second. If you just help us all, we all be on our way. But instead, there's a few of you kind of wandering around and like pushing little carts and refilling the hair products. And there's one poor lady, and then there's one person at the auto checkout. Help is on the way. Like it's like a because yeah, every not, time people it, scan it, things, yeah. they screw it up or they don't put they don't put the object that they've just scanned on the weighted thing to right. the right that right. tells the scanner that it has been put in the bagging area. And then the scanner goes, ah! you Which know, is weird it's, like, it's protecting you against what you've already you know, paid for. You already scanned it. They, they're not protecting right. you. They're protecting yeah. themselves, which by the way, also brings up the CVS, the horror of where we live. So we're living in these places where there is a shop where shoplifting has like Man. accelerated dramatically in the last couple of years. Why? Because People know that they don't uh, arrest people for misdemeanor crimes anymore, particularly in New York and in cities in California, and I think in D.C. And so if you shoplift less than a certain amount of money, you could just yeah. get away with it. So now at CVS's, everything is under lock and key. So let's say you're in a CVS, you have to go pick up a pres prescription. You walk down the aisle, you're like, you know, I could use some deodorant. And the deodorant is behind... A, a a plastic panel that is locked down and there's a button and you have to press the button. This voice goes, you know, help is on the way. Help, no, uh, call, uh, call, you know, customer service needed in body wash. That's what I heard the other day. <laughs> yes, customer service needed in body wash. And I was like, I'm not going to wait. Like I'm going to stand here and wait for someone to come grudgingly open the, open the thing. Like, and, and so this is one of the ways in which, like a crime spree, which is what's going right. on in the United States, actually worsens your quality of life. It's mm -hmm. you're not like threatened. You're not going to yeah. be mugged in the store. You know. But and like, you know what? Yeah, I think a lot of people feel the same way, and that's one of the reasons that it's going to be a giant sweep for the Republicans the midterms. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, New York and California are uh -oh. among the two places. That's no, true. Are among are among the two places where the Republican vote totals were radically improved. They did not get over the hump enough in the governor's race, uh, but in but C California and New York saved the House for for Republicans. Republicans won five seats in the House. They won a bunch of seats in the in New York. Mm -hmm. They won a bunch of seats in the House in California because the Republican message in places where crime was really really serious actually resonated. Where, where people felt like things were out of control or they lived at least in proximity to places where things were out of control. Like they could feel it because they come in on commuter trains or whatever. I don't even know, but right. All right. We need to take a break for our first sponsor. Okay. You stuck in a black Friday crowd, super uncomfortable, but shopping Tommy John's before black Friday sales, super duper comfortable. Like Tommy John, when you give your loved ones, Tommy John, they're that much more comfortable so they can do everything better. Shop Tommy John's before black Friday sale now and give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list, including yourself with Tommy John's men's and women's loungewear with over 18 million pairs sold. Giving Tommy John underwear and loungewear has become a holiday tradition. 97% of women and men love getting a gift from Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. I'm actually wearing Tommy John underwear right now. 
That's that's how much I like it. Celebrate softness season with the gift of Tommy John underwear, loungewear, and pajamas. Every gift backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear. It's free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's Black Friday sale going on right now and get 30% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com slash glop. 30% off everything now at tommyjohn.com slash glop. tommyjohn.com slash glop. See site for details. And... I need to also talk to you guys about Donors Trust. This is one of my favorites because we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principal and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. The Economist recently reported American philanthropy is going woke. You know how much we love that, how much we hate that, really. Let's, I'm being ironic, and I should be more earnest reading an ad. Uh, and predominantly funding liberal causes. Do you want to help counterbalance this liberal influence? If so, consider giving listening to Giving Ventures. Giving Ventures will give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts, initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. Recently, Giving Ventures was joined by Star Parker, founder and president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, a charity that works with lawmakers to craft policy that lifts people out of poverty. Kendall Qualls, president of Take Charge Minnesota, whose organization promotes common sense family policy and vocational training. And Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, a charity that helps revitalize low-income communities. The show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with the policy groups, student organizations, academic centers, and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government, grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. If you care about the principles of liberty and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures is the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on the latest episode by visiting www.donorstrust.org slash podcast. Um, Rob, uh, yeah. you wrote a piece for commentary maybe two years ago about the about the memoir or the business book cum memoir of, of yeah. Bob Iger, the chairman of Disney, who was just retiring. And of course, the <laughs> yeah. big dramatic news this week Not long. is that uh, he's back as the yeah. chairman of Disney and his successor, Bob Chapek, has been defenestrated quite violently, I would say, like... He knew it was coming rudely abruptly after he uh, went on an earnings call to announce that they had, among other things, lost several billion dollars in streaming, but that he they had had a really great oogie boogie uh, Halloween party. And he had been at the oogie boogie Halloween party at Disneyland and people were really enjoying themselves. And apparently it was among the most embarrassing moments in business history. Um, the earnings call for Disney where he mm -hmm. announced that it was okay that they lost all this money because of the oogie boogie Halloween party. <laughs> um, so, Rob, you were very admiring of, of Bob Iger, and I'm wondering how you feel about Bob Iger now that he has to come back and do this like salvation run at uh, at, at the at the well, world's I mean, most beloved entertainment to. company. He, he doesn't have to. He 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 was available. I mean, I, he I mean, he he's a really really smart guy. Um, uh, and it, it, I think what will happen is that, that he'll get the company back together, and it'll look like he did it all when in fact, and Bob Chapek will be going around saying like, "Yeah, I I was there." 
you know, I was there during the sick years, but I didn't cause the sick years. It looks like, like uh, Iger kind of skipped over the part where the, there's enormous retrenchment in the business. Um, no, he's a really great. He's a very, very good, great executive, probably the best executive in show business ever. And maybe one of the best executives in America um, when he was the CEO of that company. And he had one particular trait, which was, I think was made him unusual and unusual amongst all CEOs, which is that he really didn't, he was not, he's not an egomaniac. He really doesn't have, I mean, he has an ego. We all have an ego, but he doesn't express it. He, he doesn't care who gets the limelight. He just didn't care. So and there aren't many people who could be a ringmaster and a lion tamer for um, Steve Jobs, George Lucas, the Marvel team, then the Pixar team. Um, and then the regular Disney animation team and plus all the movie makers he worked with. Um, he, he managed to like charm and do deals with all of those people in a way that they, they wanted to be, they, they wanted, and also with Rupert Murdoch, right. Um, they, they wanted to be close to him when, when Murdoch sold his studio to Iger, part of the deal was we want to keep, we want to be part of this new thing because they believed in him. So, um, you know, he is a very talented guy. So I, I, I suspect that if, if there's a solution here for Disney, it, it, um, he, he's going to be able to find it. But mostly, I think it's just the, you know, the, the stock tanks 40%. You got to do something. So that book of Iger's begins with Iger saying, aside from the story about how he had to come back from Shanghai because an alligator uh, had eaten a toddler at the mm -hmm. Disney World. Um, I hate to laugh because it's a horrible thing, but come on, that's hilarious. A toddler <laughs> came, uh, the alligator came out of the Lake Buena Vista or Bay Lake or whatever it was <laughs> and ate a baby. And, <laughs> goofy, goofy lake. Yeah, and he was at Shanghai Disneyland, opening Disneyland Shanghai mm -hmm. at the, that time. But he goes into how... He sat down, he knew a big change was coming, and he sat down and he said, we need to reorient this company. The future is streaming, and we need to reorient this company. We're going to reorient it. And they sat down, and he had a flowchart, and they had an ideation session with a whiteboard, and they wrote hey, stuff down. God. And it was like three years they were going to reorient the company to streaming, and they reoriented the company to streaming, and he retired, and Bob Chapek and, uh, you know, and so then they're reorienting the company, company to streaming. And guess what? So they did it, and H and AT&T did it with HBO Max, and they reoriented everything to streaming, and they did it because of Netflix and the stock price. And guess what? Everybody had their shirts handed to them by reorienting to streaming. And Iger is coming back because Bob Chapek, his successor, lost a couple billion dollars on streaming. But the streaming agenda of Disney right. was Bob Iger's agenda. It was not. Now he made a couple. of Chapek made a couple of boneheaded decisions. It, it appears, you know, he didn't. He he did. He let things go to streaming that he should have released in theaters that could have made hundreds of millions. Well, and of now we know that we don't. We didn't know that before when he made the decision. Wait, yeah, before. but but in any case, I just love the fact that he's coming in riding in on a horse yeah. to save Disney. When in fact, Chapek was basically following his blueprint, which was the entire company needs to reorient to streaming because Wall Street, as Wall Street is wont to do, fell in love with this idea that there was this inevitable. Well, I mean, stre streaming constant... is still here to stay. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's it's not. I mean, the question is trying to get the 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 
the pricing right and the offering right, which everyone's going to you know trip and fall all the time. But mostly what these businesses have, they have, always have the same problem, which I think they all learned in Harvard Business School, which is that they, have, they believe in this thing that doesn't exist, which is the first mover advantage. Like, we got to get there. They're there. We got to get there. They're doing it. We got to be there. As if the world is made up of giant multinational companies that did everything first. They usually do things. You know, I always say it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. And that is, that is what you really always say. That's what I always say. And that well, is so actually much, it's more mellifluous in French, but still, it's yeah, great. The deuxième souris, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> fromage, uh, fromage, uh, right? Uh, gets, gets the fromage, but it's like <laughs> all, all those, all those people, like they, they think they had to run into it, and they and, and you look, know, COVID helped them see. COVID helped them think that no one was going to go to movie theaters anymore. So they. It was kind of a perfect storm of problem, but Chapik really just also culturally wasn't much of a fit. And people complain about the way he was fired, which apparently was incredibly, incredibly brutal. Um, he just they called him up one day and said, "You're fired." Um, that is exactly the way he fired Peter Rice, who used to run the motion picture side. So it's like he he didn't fit, and and uh, Wall Street likes Iger. They loved Iger, so what, they're going to carry Iger out. I, I am actually pro Iger because he owed me twenty four hundred dollars, and they did pay me eventually. That is a very good reason to like somebody in my, yeah. in my view. I think, yeah, the, yeah. Um, the first mover point is a really good one. And it's something I think about a lot in different contexts. Like we've talked about it a bunch, the pivot to video and journalism, right? Yeah. You get this thing where everyone's like, everyone's doing this. And like, even if you only concede that like the people who are really good at it are making a smart decision, the, the, you know, the, first, second, or third adoptees of the pivot to video or, or whatever, you know, or pivot to newsletters. The idea that like, therefore everyone should do it is batty and, and do you, it now. You, right. Yeah. You see this kind of group think all the time. It seems like in business where people are terrified of, of being left with an old model, old business model, but like, you look at you know like Warren Buffett. He's got a kind of an old business model. It, but, it, you it know, works for Warren Buffett. You know. But the thing is that the business sides of these businesses, these the people who <laughs> start pushing these changes, they have contracts that are different from us creative people in our contracts. Right? Our contracts are you know write this and produce whatever. Theirs are like you need to hit this target. You need X, or there has to be. If you get, if you reach this number of something, you will get a hundred thousand dollar bonus, or you'll get a million dollar bonus, or something like that. And then, so they are constantly thinking about how to hit a target that is going to get them a special tranche of money, and they want that money, and they right. are therefore incredibly susceptible to the idea that there is a shortcut to that mm -hmm. money because yeah. we don't have that incentive. We, you know, the, the the people actually have to produce the videos that are journalism or or produce the publication or something like that are under no similar incentives. Often we don't own stock or we don't have this or we don't have that. So the business is pressing a creative change on the creative side. This is a constant story. Like this is a story of a lot of unsuccessful things I've been involved with in journalism where the business side is like, we need to do, we have right. to shorten the articles because mm -hmm. no, you know, we, or we need to appeal. It's the classic thing. Like young people aren't reading us. So we need to appeal to young people. But if young people aren't reading you and you change the product, how are they even going to know 
mm-hmm. to read you when if you change the product, the people who are reading you are going to go, why are you making it garbage here? Like, I like it as it is. And you're like dumbing it down. And that's not what I'm looking for. So there's always this cross pressure and it is maddening. Um, yeah. And and it, it is the story of every boom and bust in publishing. <laughs> but you can or, also or tell media, from, you can usually tell when you're talking to that person, you know, those guys are like, um, let me tell you something. That's how they start. Let, uh, let me, let me tell you, let me tell you something about the customer or let me, let me tell you something about the voter. It's the same thing. What the, here's what Americans want. Here's what the, vo- here's what the newspaper reader based on nothing or some cockamamie like focus group they had. It's always serving, scratching an itch that nobody had ever. Nobody ever wanted to do this ever. And you know, like I have that, I used to have that argument with people who are deep into crypto. It's like, let me tell you what this, what the crypto, what the blockchain is going to be able to do. It's like I, I, I don't need that. Like, why do I need that? Like, I have Zelle, right? I can like on Zelle on my phone. That pretty much takes our Venmo. <laughs> Zelle is not right? a math based currency. Yeah, Rob. it's not exactly. It's not Web three or whatever. Now maybe eventually it will all work. I don't know, but like I don't have to get into it now. I, there's no for first mover advantage. Let me tell you. And it's usually when somebody's absolutely convinced. People do not want to. Go, they want to stream. They want to. They want to binge. They want all the things that they say they want and they're going to do and we're going to have and you know never. We're in, we, they don't want ads, John and 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 Jonah. People don't want ads. They want to pay twenty four dollars a month for movies they'll never watch. That's what they want. We have research that shows that. It's like when Burger. You remember this? I always talk about the story. Burger King. Um, uh, these years ago, they did a study. They thought, well, why do people not go to Burger King and they go to McDonald's? And they got really granular. It turned out that, that because the McDonald's fries are delicious and the Burger King fries were terrible. So they spent like millions and millions of dollars trying to come up with a different, better fry. And they actually came up with a fry that focus groups and tests proved it was better. So they retrofitted all of their, because it's like a, it's a fry coated with um, cornstarch. So it's crispier. And uh, so then they, they changed all their fryers and their whole thing and all the stores. And they discovered that people don't like the fries. <laughs> And like, well, wait a minute, they do. We don't. We, we I proved you they like the fries. I have to look at all the research, but yeah, they don't like it. They don't like the fries. Well, new Coke, new Coke, like yeah. scored wildly better than original Coke. That's why Coke <laughs> changed Coke to yeah. new Coke. It's so great. People didn't want new Coke, even though the you know hundred thousand people. Yeah, right. Hundred thousand people preferred new Coke to old Coke. It's absolutely amazing. Um. All right, uh, we got to take another break. Another break. Another break. Again with the breaks. So many breaks. Uh, then can I tell a story about my, my, uh, the, the concert I went to last night? Yes. Okay. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, AG1, because I wanted to take one thing and not a lot of bit different pills, and I needed like multivitamins and a probiotic and all sorts of things. Um, and it seemed like the easy way to do it. And it is, I've been using it for a while now and I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy or super greeny or something. It just has a kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning and each afternoon when I drink it in the afternoon. So what is it? Okay. One delicious scoop of AG1. You're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all those things. 
I, uh, I use it in the, in the travel packets and I sometimes drink it in the morning, but more often I drink it in the afternoon, right around, right after lunch, sometime around three o'clock. Um, and it, uh, replaces that little cup of coffee I used to have that would keep me awake. And it is absolutely delicious. It's the one thing with all of the best things. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Contains less than one gram of sugar, which is good for me. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and it still tastes great. It supports better sleep quality, recovery, along with mental clarity and alertness. And right now, you can reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D. As we discussed, vitamin D is a very good way to protect yourself uh, from COVID and if you have COVID. And you get five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you're like me, you'll fall in love with the travel packs and get those uh, in the future. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash glop. And again, that is athleticgreens, all one word, dot com slash glop to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. And we thank Athletic Greens for their excellent product, but also for sponsoring this Glop podcast. So I went to this concert last night. So when I was in uh, high school, as a senior in high school, I drove down some friends of mine to see the English Beat play at uh, at Battelle Chapel at Yale. And the English Beat, they're the coolest band ever at the time. Um, <laughs> and, they, uh, and I was a huge English Beat fan. For, uh, in college and then um and then you know as you do you just you just don't i don't really they didn't they stopped making music and i stopped listening to the music and then they're playing at the city winery english beat just basically dave wakeling playing there uh, who is the one of the originals and I, i'm in line and i'm going inside there and i realize everyone here is exactly my age mm-hmm. and everyone is dancing in an awkward pre-hip replacement kind of way and it's just, it's so weirdly fun, but also incredibly embarrassing and humiliating. And then there's like a type, there's a guy type who's like roughly my age, who's got the um, little trimmed, you know, go- gray goatee and maybe a little hat, a little pork pie hat or some kind of hipster hat that he wears because he's bald. And uh, there's a lot of those guys around. And then there's also guys that like, I think that is a certain point, like you, you, at a certain point in your life, you're just like, I am going to wear the clothes that I bought when I had money. <laughs> and then I'm not going to buy more clothes because I don't need anymore. So a lot of, there are a lot of guys. This is your Paul like, Manafort theory, right? which I yeah. was just recounting yeah. the other yeah. day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like you wear the clothes. And, it was, it was, and I thought, and, I, and it took me a while as I was like thinking, I'm like with my disdain at these people. Look at all these weirdo. Look at all these ancient nerds. What were look you at wearing? all these ludicrous. And I'm wearing a blue button-down uh, Oxford cloth shirt and khakis and little kind of look like boat shoes. I'm wearing exactly what I wore to see the English beat 40 years ago. <laughs> you know, this is the story of American music touring now, which is yeah. you have all these like old bands and people are going to them for nostalgia reasons. And why is this <laughs> successful? Because these concerts, these tickets maybe not at city winery, but like at, you know, major venues cost yeah. 250 to $500. Sure. And like right. a 19 year old isn't going to, doesn't have the money to pay for that. So, um, you know, you get like, I don't know, Bob Dylan, you know, in a wheelchair, you know, <laughs> strumming and singing, you know, 
so tunelessly that right. you can't even believe that he... even more than usual. Yeah, so exactly. my, uh, my AI but, colleague, know, yeah. my AI colleague Mark Thiessen, uh, he regularly goes to 80s rock band uh, uh, concerts, like tours, venues, all that kind of stuff. Um, way into it. I can't remember the last one he went to. It was like Motley Crue or something like that. And if you start paying attention, it turns out that most of the bands from the 1980s are still playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and some of the bands from the 1960s are still playing, yeah. <laughs> like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> right. But um, one data point to push back on on that, John, is that my research assistant, Guy Denton, at the American Enterprise Institute, just got back from a KISS cruise. <laughs> That's the joke. That's the whole thing. I'm done. I don't have to tell you anymore. <laughs> Except it could only be better if the other the other people on the cruise were the NR cruise, the National Review cruise. No, apparently Look, they had the whole boat. That was one of the first questions I asked them. I was uh, like, did you have the whole boat or were you guys like yeah. sharing it? You know, with AARP or something like that. And he's like, nope, they had the whole boat. And um, and apparently KISS does have a youthful, not entirely like, it's not like, you know, like, remember that there was that big hipster thing about spam for a while or like spam t-shirts and it was like ironic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not, as far as I can tell, wholly ironic. Um, it is incomprehensible, but that's... It is anyway. incomprehensible because KISS... This is like Jimmy Buffett. Kiss. There's a whole. There's this whole section of touring music. People who have been like doing this for like forty right. years, who had one hit or two hits. Kiss had, Kiss two, had hits, two right? Hits. Detroit Rock City and I Want to Rock and Roll All Night. I think those are the Beth, only two. Beth is what? their big. Uh, their big uh, tour. Okay, song, that's Beth. three. Okay, that's three. Beth, I okay. hear you call. And of course, and of course, <laughs> Jimmy Buffett had Margaritaville and nothing but Margaritaville. Just right? a few. Okay, so John, hours. you're bearing the lead here. And I think yeah. I, I think Glop listeners more than anybody yes. else need to hear this. I mentioned it in passing the other day on my podcast. And I mentioned it to Yuval Levin the other day at AI, and he was gobsmacked. I was in New York uh for election week and to deal with stuff with my mom and John and I had long put off having lunch, and so we went to have lunch. And where did John say that we should meet for lunch? None other than the Margaritaville restaurant in Times Square. <laughs> and um, and it's convenient to his office. The food's not bad. He's right. It's not bad. Yeah. But there was a moment where, because apparently the Margaritaville restaurant is trying to gin up buzz, that they had free a photographer offering free photos of patrons in like with some sort of backdrop kind of thing, eating at Margaritaville that they would turn into a postcard for free. And John and I immediately instinctually said, no, 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 we're not interested. What? But then it dawned, it dawned on me afterwards that there are people who would very much like to see such a photo, yes. Yes. Um, including one Yuval Levin, head of yes. cultural constitutional. So I need to explain. I need to explain. I, I, I cannot you... believe that you went. You would you walk? Okay, right Rob, the... you meet me at the Margaritaville Grill, and we will get our pictures taken and go on a postcard. We'll do it like next week. You'll meet me. We'll we'll go do that. Here's the thing about the Margaritaville Grill in New York City on 40th Street uh, and 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 Seventh in Times Square. So you go, uh, it's a hotel, actually, the Margaritaville Hotel, know, which is already, already hilarious. Point. 
Yeah. So you go up the escalator and you're in the Margaritaville grill and there is, and there is a two story tall replica of the statue of Liberty right. holding a margarita. And the margarita As God is like, is an led sign that plays Jimmy Buffett singing stuff on, <laughs> on the, on the, yeah. So, yeah. um, it's the a last sensory experience. There was someone coming through on stilts who was making balloon animals for children. There were no children there when we were there. It was pretty empty. It was sort of a midday lunch and, you know, midweek. And so there, there wasn't anybody there. But um, yes, we were at the Margaritaville Grill where they do serve the cheeseburger in paradise. Not since Sidney Hook had, edit- had lunch with the editor of commentary in 1948. <laughs> yes at the yes trying to think of where he was where he would have been he would have been at the how much is that doggy in the window grill <laughs> right or grill something. from Ipanema grill yeah. maybe or yeah. exactly. from here to eternity okay. merry month yeah. of may uh, uh yeah. that's actually kind of a um it is a kind of a notorious hotel right it, it like the the high, uh, high line the standard high line hotel has rooms that are uh very visible and so um the 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 highline hotel is actually a a thing where people uh exhibitionists would check into the highline um and on one side of the highline is like you're facing west side highway and the other side you're actually facing the highline like people could be walking on the highline and can see right into your room and they would um have sex they would disport of themselves yes. in the all together well and in an exhibitionist style and i and um i have heard from more than one person walking by the margaritaville hotel that the same thing is happening well I, I i my office window is literally i don't know 50 feet from the margaritaville hotel so you, you, you know that this is true Yes, and so and I can have you imagine what the guests of the hotel say about the editor's commentary. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yes. <laughs> look, look at that guy editing; it's so hot. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. so my God, look at that! Oh, shut uh, up! They're doing their podcast now. <laughs> oh, split those infinitives! <laughs> right, right, right. right. Can, can we talk a little? Can we talk a teeny bit of an apocalyptic uh, cultural apocalypse that I want? I sort of started alluding to in the streaming thing, but I wanted to bring up here, which is okay. Okay, we're we're as we're taping this, it's two days from Thanksgiving. This is the this is the moment at which the holiday movie season really begins in earnest every year, except for the COVID year. And um also the award season, like the prestige films open and all of that. And nobody cares about anything. Uh prestige movie after prestige movie has opened. No one is going to see them, not even in yeah, specialty yeah. release, tar. The movie with Kate Blanchett as a as a as a uh, symphony mm-hmm. conductor, The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's movie, which hasn't opened wide yet, but which the signs for which are not at all encouraging. This is a uh, autobiographical film about him moving to Arizona as a kid and then getting interested in movies and facing uh, very serious anti-Semitism. Uh, Armageddon Time, a movie about 1980 New York by James Gray. Um, and uh, and then we have the incredible disaster that, as she said, that is the Harvey Weinstein, the journalist at the New York Times who got right. people to go on the record to say that Harvey Weinstein had had raped them uh, or molested them. And that movie had an opening so bad that is, I think, is now ranked as the fourth worst opening in Hollywood history for a movie that was opened in 2000 theaters. 
leading me to dub it all the presidents Oogie Loves because Oogie <laughs> Loves was a good was dubbing, a, by the way. Thank you. It was a child, was a movie for children, an effort to create a franchise out of nothing that opened one weekend and made $300 per theater. Right. Literally, the thing, the lowest I mean, just to be clear, because yes. I'm, I'm a huge student of the Oogie Loves, even though I've never seen the movie, but like yes. my daughter and I were in the theater, and my daughter was of, just out of the age that the Oogie Loves would have been for her, right? Yes. And we watched the trailer for that. And I, I highly recommend people watch it yes. on YouTube because it's fascinating. And our reaction was, oh my God, someone's getting fired. Yeah. <laughs> it was like well, so obviously terrible. Yeah. So who's getting fired over <laughs> She Said, which made $1,000 a theater over a week, over a weekend, uh, $2 million. And um, I just, the schadenfreude in me yeah. is so thick. Me too. Well, here's my kind of hageographic study of yeah. two female. What did they do? They got people on the record to talk about Harvey Weinstein, right? This is not, they didn't break the story. And they also, they weren't, they weren't the, they weren't, they weren't the, the victims. They were the reporters once again. Yeah. Who the entire story is about getting people to say, I will say this on the record. Like that is not interesting. Number one. And number two, I, I hate to put it this way because Hollywood is a portmanteau and it's not fair to say all of Hollywood is one thing, but Hollywood releasing a movie celebrating people for bringing down Harvey Weinstein when for 25 years everybody in Hollywood knew yeah. that Harvey Weinstein was a predatory monster and didn't lift a finger or do anything right. or not work with him. They sucked up to him. They gave that's him how they make it better, though. Yeah, that's how, they, that's how they atone for it. We'll make a movie about it. Yeah, about how bad it was that the thing that we didn't do. <laughs> um, that's a, well, look, don't you think it's possible that the American people, the audience at this point, is just kind of taking a break? You know, sometimes when you like eat something and you like you and you, and you maybe have too much of it, and you're like, yeah, you know, you're gonna take a break. You're like, you know what? No more pizza this month. I had too much pizza, yeah. and then you finally have that pizza after a couple months. It's delicious pizza. You know, uh, there's been this a surfeit of everything. And there, there is, I mean, Hollywood has the same rules as everything else. If you give people tons of something, you increase supply, the demand goes down, the price goes down, and you got to, like, figure that out. And that's what all they did was they increased the supply. And they thought they were, they thought they were immune to that. But the great thing about those rules is that no one's immune to them ever. And, um, and they're discovering it now. And that's, you know, I don't think it's a cultural apocalypse. I think it's going to be great. It's a, little, it's, a, it's a cleanse. Think of it as a, as a Hollywood cleanse. Let me let me ask you this: do A you colon think, broom. Do you think which I was is something I see advertised on yes. uh, Instagram all the time? Colon broom. You're like, what does that do? I wonder. <laughs> yeah, just you know, you take a break. Well, let me actually the opposite. Me, but was like the Saturday yeah. Live skit about the uh, fake commercial colon about the blow. cereal? Colon, colon blow. blow. Yeah. 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 No. No. It, it really is a thing. They call it colon broom. Oh so, my god. Yeah. So, Jonah, let me ask you this. So I look at these movie offerings, and one thing that occurred to me, I was also occurred to me at the Broadway theater, but that's a very limited thing that, you know, Rob and I, not all that many people are all that interested in. But where's the fun? You know, so there's this whole thing about how there's a crisis, there are no more romantic comedies, right? Because it's so hard to make them, because they press all these sexual, cultural buttons that it's too hard to press. Or where's the fun? Like, nothing is fun and like in the 1970s when movies were all bummers 
they were nonetheless kind of fun because they were jangly or they were interesting. They were they were they were vivid. They were exciting. They showed you stuff you hadn't seen before. But I like look. I go. It's like time to look to see if you can watch something on a Saturday or something like that. And they're so everything is like is like eat your peas. Like let's look at this terrible thing that happened and see yeah. what we did wrong and right. as Americans and like who leave people alone mm-hmm. yeah. create a community <laughs> like they like just want to have a good time what is the matter with you pete you used to know that that's what people wanted so well but i, I think you're, so i have been in part because i take a i sit on the sidelines in some of your conversations on here because I, I am not as expert on the workings of hollywood as you guys are but in part because i am not as expert on the workings of hollywood I'm like, let me put it this way. George Orwell, in one of my favorite essays, Second Thoughts on James Burnham, he makes this point about how the intellectuals constantly thought World War II was, they were going to lose World War II in the, in the UK. We're going to lose World War II. No, we're going to win New York. We're going we're to lose. We're going to win. Kept going back and forth based upon every single setback. They would do straight line projections saying, oh, we're going to lose the war. And then uh, every success, they're oh, we're going to win the war. Meanwhile, the average Brit was just sort of like, yeah, we're going to win. It's going to be a long haul, but we're going to win. It's going to be okay. And I think that people who pay too much attention to Hollywood stuff yeah. are constantly looking for these trends and then doing straight line projections. So from the last, since the beginning of COVID, you guys did several episodes where you dragged me along behind the trailer over the gravel about how our movie theaters doomed. And I was like, I don't think so. I think people like movie theaters. There might be fewer of them, but I think, you know, over time it'll be mm-hmm. okay. And we've gone back and forth about this question and we've been celebratory and triumphal and we've been depressed and whatever. You look at the 1970s. They made all of those incredibly grim Panic and Needle Park, you know, taxi driver kind of movies. And then by the second half of the 1970s, it's Smokey and the Bandit and Hooper for as far as the eye can see. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of I kind of bet that like yeah. a bunch of people wrote checks in response mm-hmm. to the success of Maverick that we're going to start seeing play out in 2023 and 2024. I agree. Um, and they're, the, it, everything is sort of, it's Hegelian. You get like, yeah, you get all this crappy navel-gazing garbage, and then people are like, that. people don't want it, so then someone says, let's counter-program and do something fun. So I bet you we get a bunch of romantic comedies in the next couple of years. Well, some of them will be stupid, like bros, but right. uh, some of them won't be. Here's uh, I I I I, ba- I think I basically agree with everything you just said, except I have a a, a theory about romantic comedy, which uh, maybe make it slightly more complicated. Is that almost every single great romantic comedy um, of the past has uh, actions and statements in it that now are considered um, problematic or actionable or illegal or you know, isn't that true they, they, every great comedy of the last yeah they all years? have stalking in them uh, stalking or uh, um uh, inappropriate touch or uh su- or lying and seduction they're all i mean the trigger warnings on a romantic comedy must be outrageous of colleges right so the, someone's got to figure out a way to make a romantic comedy that involves no conflict and no subterfuge well they and are I, making them they're yeah. making them and they're bad. That's the, as <laughs> they're a result. Funny. They don't have the. And the other part. thing is, comedies are about people. A rom drum. Yeah. Comedies are about people behaving badly. 
That right. is, comedy is about humans acting, you know, tragedy is about humans acting with the highest, you know, at the highest level and failing for, right, you know, right. reasons of hubris or whatever. Comedy is about people being low, tricking each other, screwing mm-hmm. each other, um, you know, all of that. And for some reason, this is now nothing you're allowed to watch because, because supposedly these are all romantic comedies are about people, you know, behaving wonderfully toward each other or something like that. I don't know, but I will say uh, that I want to mention this because I was thinking about it in relation to Broadway. So I saw this extraordinary play by Tom Stoppard, Leopold Stott, which is about, which is about a Jewish family in Vienna over the course of, from the turn of the century through 1955, the same apartment and what happens to the family. And you sort of know what's going to happen to the family. And then you see what happens after the Holocaust, uh, when three members of the family come back to this family apartment. And it's an amazing play. It's two hours long. It's vivid. It's sharp. It's like, it moves like a freight train. Um, it's very exciting, but like every other play on Broadway is either a revival of a homework play, meaning literally homework, things that people read homework. That's a raisin in the sun, or it's, or it's, uh, it's death of a salesman or it's a, you know, and of course, uh, or gender flipped or racially flipped or whatever, and, you know, there was a whole, for most of the history of Broadway, there were comedies. There were, I was thinking about this because there was a show called Death Trap, right? I Ira, love Ira Levin, who wrote, right. oh, so Ira yeah. Levin wrote, Rosemary, he wrote Death Trap. It ran for four years. It was a whodunit uh, with a lot of twists and turns. There yeah. used to a be little two places. participation in that too, right? Wasn't there? I don't, no. not, not, I don't no, think so. No, but, but. Else. But you're thinking um, moose murders. <laughs> no, but madness. anyway, so theater was also, <laughs> you know, there was there was Neil Simon. There was a, there were comedies ever efforts yeah, yeah. to entertain people. The yeah. only thing that now is designed to entertain people are musicals. Plays are all like come eat your spinach and be told yeah. about the racism yeah. in our society. Nobody pays for homework. Yeah. And it's like congratulations, sell two hundred dollar tickets. To something yeah, listen, like this. What is say, the like, matter? Again, what is the matter right, with you people? I'll, I'll talk about music now, popular music on two on two ends, right? The first, uh, the youngest, the most, probably the most famous, successful musical act today is Harry Styles, right? So Harry Styles is so incredibly influential that other dudes are, are wearing pearls, like, like, because he's doing all this crazy fashion stuff, right? And I saw him in Madison Square Garden. And I saw his, and here's how he opens his show. He opens it by saying, uh, he comes out, he sings a song and he goes, hey, we're here for the next 90 minutes or so. We're here to entertain you. And that's what we're trying to do. We're going to try to do our best to entertain you. And if you want to sing along, sing along. If you want to dance in the aisles, dance in the aisles. You want to be, do whatever you want to do for the next 90 minutes. Because our job is to make you happy and entertain you. And then he, for 90 minutes, he does a showbiz show. He like sings all of his hits. He doesn't not sing any of the hits. He sings all the hits and he doesn't take a break. I mean, he took a little break. I don't know. He doesn't like he sings. And then he does a little crowd work that you could see because I've watched the, the, the TikTok stuff of him. Now you could see he's got an earpiece and they're telling him where the funny signs are in the arena. And they're pr- and you could see him clocking them and he's doing it in the first part of his number before he does his crowd work. The guy is a professional entertainer. He is doing what Sammy Davis Jr. And people like that did for years. It's, it's like, like a live it's amazing episode of Glop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Just like exactly. sheer entertainment. Um, and then last night, you know, Dave Wakeling, 
Dave Wakeling's like 67, 68 years old. And he comes, he doesn't do an hour and a half. He does an hour and no, no uh, encore. But you could see him hoffing and puffing between. He, he took, had to take little breaks after songs. He could see him backing up and like getting his Fiji water and drinking it and kind of catching his breath. And like the, the audience was like cheering, but kind of quiet. And think he walked back to Mike. I mean, you know, he's an old man, but like there, it, there still is, exists that ethos, right? Which is you paid your money. And I'm going to, we, we used to call it in show business a sweat act. And a sweat act is an act where you're, you're just going to, you're going to go, it, it, you're going to work really hard. We're going to watch you work really, really hard. And um, that's actually a very pleasing thing to see when you're in the audience. This is a sweat act. Jonah, so the woke culture here is a bummer. Like woke culture is a bummer. It's like, it's lecturing and it's hectoring and it, it says you're not allowed to like this and like that. Or you're not allowed to like the other thing. And it's very much the way a lot of people felt about conservative culture mm-hmm. when we were all just like reaching our majority. It's like, it's all, you know, like disapproving and it's, you know, finger wagging and those oh, parents against, you know, married with children, married with children is pornography and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, leave me alone. Like, I think it's married with children is funny. Don't make me feel bad to think that married with children is funny. And then I wonder like, okay, so woke has really taken over the minds of the entertainment industry. And uh, there is this market opportunity for people like the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's, you know, the uh, business and now like actually trying to make conservative counterproduct, which is always problematic because it's very hard to do, right? But like, are they going to just like make people, despite the fact that young people are 65% democratic or whatever they are, are they going to like, ugh, I'm sick of you. Like, I'm, you know, like you guys are all bummers like i didn't this is not what i signed up for so it's funny um and it's sort of timely because i just watched some of the induction to the rock and roll hall of fame um which is uh more entertaining than i would have guessed um but have you guys been to the rock and roll hall of fame no here it's great though i have yeah okay so it's uh it's amazing how much the rock and roll industry and this this is it, the rock and roll hall of fame is so disnified right and it is geared towards middle-aged and older people they they've convinced themselves it's geared towards young rebellious people right but it's 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 like it's rebellious in the same way that being liberal on a college campus is rebellious it is part of the doctrine to say you're being rebellious even though it's like conformist but it is amazing how much the early exhibits in it highlight how rebellious rock and roll was in the 50s and the 60s all the way through like the 90s you know ice t's cop killer album and all this kind of stuff and it's all kitsch and what is amazing to me is how like the professional entertainment industry what what's the line from dark knight rises die hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain um, <laughs> these guys are all becoming the villains <laughs> they're all like uh they're they're all the ones wagging their fingers saying that's not funny about everything. And I just, I don't think the market can sustain that. I really don't. I think that's one of the great, everyone talks about how bad the market is for culture and all that kind of stuff, but the market at least has capacity for self-correction. And I, I, so I'm long-term optimistic just because I don't think that people want to be, told they're bad people and that they live in a bad country and that they should feel ashamed 
for laughing or liking various things. And like, did you? I, I don't want to get John set off, but John, did you see this this reimagining of Romeo and Juliet that they're thinking about doing and that they're doing in the UK? Oh, I read about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I mean they, like, I think they canceled it. Oh, did they really? Okay, yeah, they good. did. Good, because that was. I think like, they canceled it because they had they they weren't their casting wasn't woke enough, right? Was that the reason? I think no, the no. reason they didn't cancel it because it was a terrible idea. I think they canceled it because they they had they had they had crossed some line. Well, for for listeners who don't know, they were going to do Romeo and Juliet, but with all sorts of trans kind of category busting things. But the evil thing about it, fundamentally, <laughs> profoundly evil thing about it, was uh, it was going to be like uh, Juliet was a Jew. And Romeo was a Hitler youth. And on the music. Yeah. I mean, like, that would actually be a great comedy th- bit, yeah, right? True. Sort of producer style thing where you're trying to, pre- yeah. hey, the let's worst go with the version. Like, yeah, the yeah. worst version of Romeo and Juliet that you want to have a close in a night because people are sitting there doing exactly. the eye ear, also, the monkeys. Yeah, the Romeo and Juliet, responded. you're supposed to be sad that they both die. <laughs> right. And you're supposed to think that both houses are stupid because they're right. equally blinded by whatever. All are yeah. punished. All <laughs> are punished, as the, as the Duke says. Uh, yeah. But I, my point in the end, the question is who is going to be there to correct the market creatively? If everybody no, some who studio is sort of in Tennessee, in this world. Yeah, some studio in Tennessee. Did Jonas Wright? Or, like, or the, yeah, or or it'll be like some version of the Blair Witch Project. Like somebody will make on an iPhone, yeah. will make a roman- an unwoke romantic comedy, and it'll make two hundred. There are already funny comedians on TikTok and, and yeah. Instagram. It's just a matter. I mean, of time this sitcom before. was dead until Bill yeah. Cosby. You know, I know too yeah, soon, but right. still, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. you know. No, it's just, but you know, but I, it's just a very interesting correcting for wokeness is 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 more difficult than it appears, yeah. because so many people actually um, believe in it. <laughs> yeah, they believe but in it, it. But here's the thing: is that it's laughter, that unlike yeah, yeah, unlike anything else, laughter is involuntary. You do it, right. and you don't even know you've done it. Laughter gives you away, and when people laugh, uh, it's like you're being choked. Actually, it's like somebody's actually making you breathe differently and it's not voluntary and so you can't put your armor on for comedy that's why it still works uh, you know the um the cosby thing is really interesting because i have a, fr- a friend of mine who's uh, just came up right around the time that cosby cosby show uh in 19 whatever 82 83 when it um rewrote television by opening to a 40 share and he says, yeah, he's the guy said, like, this is the old TV uh, writer creator and told me, yeah, the guy's terrible. Obviously he's a complete monster. You know, he, he drugged people and, you know, um, but on the other hand, I own a vineyard now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So money will, you know, there you go. Money helps. Okay. Money helps Scott, Emmerich, Scott tells me that we need to take another break. So we're taking another break. I want to give a gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship we share. That's why I'm not reading it this way. I'm going to start again. This holiday season, give a gift to your loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship you share. Give everyone you care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, 
What's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will combine all your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Reading the weekly stories helps you connect with loved ones, no matter how near or far apart you are. With StoryWorth, you would be given the ones you love, a most thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com slash glop and save $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash glop to save $10 on your first purchase. And we thank StoryWorth for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Okay, let, let, we, we need to spend a minute on Twitter. Uh, Rob, I spend a lot uh, more than a minute on Twitter. <laughs> so that's why Twitter isn't going to die or go away because... <laughs> Even you, who I'm sure calls Twitter a hell site, can't stop being on Twitter. I use Twitter as a news feed. I don't write on it anymore. I don't know what Rob uses it for. But this whole fantasy of the uh, anti-Elon crew that Twitter was just going to kind of collapse of its own weight on Friday night, and that was going to be the end of it, it was clearly some right. bizarre delusion. Uh, I don't understand how on earth he can make a go of this given the debt that he's in and how much money it's ever made. You know, it does still seem to me to be, have been the dumbest business play, uh, you know, sort of like bipolar, a bipolar person has ever made. Um, but uh, the notion, everybody is sort of crapping all over it. And it's actually really kind of interesting what he's up to. As I say, I don't think it will succeed, but he's trying to basically make it a more freewheeling, less, enthralled to some, you know, to these preposterous notions of uh, cultural gatekeeping by the woke and wants people to have more fun on it. And I, I don't know whether that's, you know, I mean, it seems to me to be sort of interesting. Also, I don't understand how they had 7,500 employees. What the hell did they all do? What the hell were they all doing? That's a lot of employees. That's like, that's like more employees than many, you know, many major businesses have. So, well, I, 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 I'm sort of with you. I mean, I, again, I, I, I am it's sort of like my policy on masks during the height of the pandemic. I was neither pro mask nor anti mask. I am sort of no, neither pro musk nor anti musk in all of this. I do think he has made like I, I have no problem with that agenda as you describe it, and let's assume it's correct. Like have a plan, yeah. like ch radically change your product for something you paid forty four billion dollars for. Seems stupid to me. Off the cuff, just like doing it on the fly, right? Do what you want to do. I have, I, you know, and I, I have no problem with them doing it. And like, it's amazing how so many people on Twitter are like, oh, I guess you know that whole thing about you know, uh, you know it's a private site and they can do what they want. No longer applies whenever I criticize what musk is doing no he has every right to do what he's doing it's just like i think as a matter of fiduciary obligation he has even though he is a privately held thing doing it half-assed and off the cuff is just dumb um and some of the stuff the man has no fiduciary dumb. obligation i know so not fiduciary right. he, he is, owns he owns everything he owns i, the I, I get clips. it you're right it's not a shareholder yeah. thing but yeah. like i just think look when you buy if you went out and you bought a rolls royce right, for $200,000. Fiduciary is the wrong word. But it'd be kind of stupid of you to, like, go ding it up on the first day you get it, right? You know, or not know how to drive and start driving it. Like, there's 
a reliance interest that people have in this thing. He doesn't want it to die, apparently. So just have a plan. Like he wouldn't, he certainly wouldn't send rockets into space with this management style. Um, and I, so I just think it's sort of stupid, but um, I hope he succeeds in making it better. Couldn't really make it that much worse. And so whatever. Yeah. I mean, making it better uh, from his, pers- from his stated perspective would, would, would have been cost of zero, right? You just remove, re- re- rewrite the free speech regulations, rewrite that stuff. That would have cost nothing. Um, and then slowly change the internal structure of it over time when you know more about it. But like, I mean, I am not licensed to practice psychiatry in the state of New York, but I can tell you that he hates it because they made him buy it and he's mad. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy acting out and he's acting out and projecting his anger on the thing that he irrationally is blaming, which is Twitter. And he shouldn't be, but it's you the know, same he, feeling. It, it's more that he knows he screwed up and he hates yeah, hearing. Yeah. Yeah. It. And it's, and he, and he hates the. It, it's more, it's very akin to the feeling that people have some people on this podcast who were got trapped in Twitter fights and Twitter rage and Twitter anger, and then finally had to quit Twitter. Um, <laughs> many, many times. Um, and that, 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 it does seem to have that effect on people. Uh, Twitter's revenue, ad revenue last year was $4.5 billion. Yes. Musk paid 10 times 40, that. Yeah. 10 times that. 10 X. Yeah. So he is, and I believe he is personally in $13 billion of debt, or is it more? I can't even remember what more the numbers are but weird. He, he, he didn't, he raised money. He, he borrowed money to buy right. it. He owes right. he his has creditors. $13 billion in debt service or something like that. I mean, whatever that means. Nothing I has changed. I don't know how yeah. he's going to, he just, the math well, doesn't I mean, work. He's going to be billions and billions of dollars in debt. And that's liquid debt. That's not like his, you know, Tesla stock. But he's used the Tesla stock as collateral. That's the problem. So then they're going to, so he's going to lose Tesla and he's going to go personally broke. And Twitter will, he'll sell it off for pennies on the dollar to somebody like, I don't know, Ben Shapiro, you know? I mean, this is how it's all going to, this is how it's all going to end. It could, it could very easily do that could very easily happen. I mean, I, I, I like him and I admire him, so I want him to succeed, but this seems like the kind of stupid thing that only a really smart person could do. So here's, here's, so first of all, I agree with that. I think that it's almost, it's, it's, it's almost allegorical um, that what he's doing here, right? Because like, the whole joke in our lives is that Twitter is too much of a distraction from productive work, right? And here's a guy who's literally trying to make us a transplanetary species um, and do yeah. all of these amazing things, um, being dist- so distracted by Twitter that he ends up buying it and then being even more distracted. <laughs> but yeah. um, the 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 thing is, I am... God, what was the point I was going to make? Um, that was a good point, just as it was. a good point. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree, but there was there's there's, there's there's one other thing I wanted to say, and now I can't. What were you just talking about? Okay, let's mm-hmm. move on, and I, you'll, 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 you'll if you think of it, you think <laughs> of like it, a, like both, the Dave okay. Wakeling show last night. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, COVID's gotten me. COVID's gotten you. Okay. Uh, so what else are we going to talk about? Oh, uh, Thanksgiving is coming. It's up. Yeah, I don't like Thanksgiving. Why not? You don't like Thanksgiving? I like I like Thanksgiving. I like the giving of thanks. I don't like turkey. I don't like cranberry sauce. You don't like turkey? I like stuffing, but I don't like turkey. It's too dry. It's like it's like it's like eating. You're cooking it wrong. 
like a brine your turkey, man. You're cooking it wrong. I'm not the cook. I'm only the consumer of turkey, and I don't like it. And I don't, and I really don't like cranberry sauce. And I'm not that crazy about pumpkin pie. And I speak for tens, if not hundreds, of millions of Americans who feel you do not speak for hundreds of millions of Americans. I do. I do. No, I mean, the hundreds of millions of Americans as a fact of math is the majority of Americans. You're not speaking for the majority of <laughs> yeah, Americans. Okay. I um, speak. The point I was going to make very quickly, and I'll just throw it out there. You don't have to respond to it, is that when, when you were talking earlier about how uh, market forces screw with journalist quality, uh, yeah. journalistic quality, everything would have been better if Twitter had followed the Wikipedia or, um, you know, Craigslist model. And it was purely because they thought they could get the valuations of Facebook that it screwed it up because they were chasing uh, monetization that they could never get. They could have had a perfectly nice little business that generated real money for its owners and just left it as a steady state sort of public square, but they had to go more and that's what screwed it up. Back to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is awesome. You are incorrect in every regard. You should sit there in your wrongness. I can I, add to that. I am I am I am shamed. But I am going to repeat this. I don't like turkey. You can't make me like turkey. Oh, I bet I could. I could. <laughs> many so people years ago, cook it right. Years many ago, people don't like turkey. But they're eating bad turkey. Here, but here's a way I bet I could get even you to like turkey. Years ago, uh, a few years ago, we wanted to do Thanksgiving at my mom's place because she couldn't travel. And um, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. But we didn't want to cook in my mom's kitchen, blah, 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 blah. But we figured we cater a Thanksgiving thing. And so uh, the Fair Jessica found a place that does, it's a Chinese restaurant that does Thanksgiving dinner Chinese style. And they did the turkey like Peking duck. Mm -hmm. And you get the little pancakes and the plum sauce and the scallions sure. and whatever. It was fantastic. And I guarantee you, even you would like that version of turkey. I would, but I keep kosher, so that's not that's not going to work for me. But maybe if I found a kosher meat How? place that did that, that that would be kind of awesome. Where does the unkosherness of that? Because it was in the slaughtering. And the, no, no, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, okay. yeah. Anyway, but um, but that 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 does sound awesome, and and uh, and I I would love to. Well, deep frying your turkey gets you close to that. I, I, we are a deep fried turkey. Uh, are you? We are, are pro you? deep fried Ooh. turkey. Okay, that it, sounds it exciting. But of course, I'm now. I've now been convinced by the media that deep frying a turkey is on a, on, on a par with, um, you know, like uh, bungee jumping with, where, with, with, without a, a bouncy rope. So it's, it's made, so if dangerous. To, if, if you go to YouTube. Could you stop dazzling us with your gar your jargon? If, if you go to YouTube and you look up videos of, of deep fried oh, yeah. turkey mishaps, yeah. Yeah. 95% of them are because. Yeah. Uh, it was wet. Yeah. Well, it was like they put the still frozen turkey. Uh, in boiling hot oil and that's a literally explosive but if you properly brine your turkey and then drain your turkey and you mm -hmm. put it in the hot oil it is fantastic there you go jonah goldberg brining rob of course usually the chef on the on the podcast but i think jonah has now lapped you uh, yeah, he's, he's absolutely. I, I, I would only. I would only. Uh, I, I have deep fried a turkey. I've enjoyed yeah. deep frying it. Uh, I tend now not to bother with that. I just do a dry brine for mm -hmm. a couple of days. Leave it in the refrigerator. The skin crisps up nicely. Um, when I'm feeling fancy, I debone the leg and thigh and stuff them, um, and then roast them separately from the breast. 
because the breast is what's overcooked. Agreed. Okay. Well, uh, Jonah, can people see you anywhere over the next couple of weeks on CNN? Uh, or listen I'm sure I'll be on CNN a bunch. I mean, I, I, with the COVID thing, I don't know when I'm allowed back in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I am going to Europe for a well-deserved vacation in a couple of weeks. But there's that. Uh, you know, you know what the two thousand year old man said. He said, uh, "I love your, I love going on vacations. I love your. I keep a locker in Europe." <laughs> um, Rob, uh, martini shot every Wednesday on the every angle. Wednesday. Uh, yes, in fact, yeah, I have to do it. <laughs> I just remembered I have to do one today. Oh boy! Um, yes. Oy, oh boy. Oy, oy. Yeah, well, I I got I got I got no gig except my daily gig, and uh, which you can uh, tune into. Um, and uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll reconvene in a couple of weeks uh, to survey the wreckage that is the American popular culture of 2022. I do hear that Glass Onion, the second Knives Out movie, is fantastic. So that is actually something I loved. Knives Out. Did you guys like Knives I Out? I thought Knives I Out was great. Much. Yeah. Yeah. So, and on your recommendation, I've been watching the Peripheral, and I think it's fantastic. Uh, that's on Amazon. It's a mm-hmm. series based on Will- a William Gibson novel, and it is um, really shockingly um, good. And it and like it, 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 it builds, it builds, yeah. and it. Although it does have this one thing. Now we're really going too long, but I mean, you know how there's like these science fiction shows, and it's like somebody pops in somewhere, and they've never been there. It's like a hundred years in the future, and then somebody says, "How did I get here?" And it's like, well, "I'll tell you later." <laughs> like, you know, they're always there, I'm lost. It's always like, "Really? No, tell. Would you just tell me now." Like, I know now? you think yeah. we we don't have time for me to explain to you how this thing that couldn't happen possibly happened, and then they kind of get okay. I'll say, tell me, okay, tell me later, because obviously we have to do this other thing first. I know this is how it has to happen so that, it, you know, there are lots of reveals, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's a point at which you go like, oh, come on, man, <laughs> and play that card. It's like, what do you talk? What is a peripheral? I'll tell you later. Anyway. So uh, thanks everybody for listening and we will be back in a couple of weeks. Happy Thanksgiving. Bader. Enjoy your turkey. Turkey lurkey. Nibbling on sponge cake. Watching the sun bake All of those tourists Covered with oil Strumming my six string On my front porch swing Smell those shrimp there
Yeah, it was just like it was just like a giant middle finger came out of the second line saying, F- "Yeah, you got COVID." <laughs> Ricochet. Join the conversation.